0: stages of labor, hormones of birth, and timing contractions are not the most important or effective ways to learn about physiologic birth. And chances are, you've learned some of that, and you still have questions about what to expect from birth. And these questions linger because the sources that are teaching childbirth preparation are only offering facts about labor and birth created to enable the medical system to justify the use of interventions to speed up labor despite the injuries experienced by mothers and the disruptions to the mother-baby bonding. Before birth became a medical procedure that needed these guidelines and metrics, women were shown physiologic birth instead of charts and graphs and tables. Today, we have the benefit of merging traditional physiologic birth knowledge with what is useful from research and evidence And this has been the key to helping my students and clients avoid things like tears and traumatic birth injuries and go on to have fulfilling natural births. If natural birth is calling you, merging traditional physiologic birth with learning modern knowledge may be the answer to your lingering questions. And you can begin the journey of seeing physiologic birth with a free class that will introduce you to the three Ps of physiologic birth that help my students and clients avoid tearing in only 15 minutes so you will know why you can trust your body to give birth without injury. After watching this 15-minute video, you will know what physiologic birth really is and why learning the stages of labor, lists of hormones, and cervical dilation rates is just not enough, the most common points in labor where tissue damage tends to occur, and how to use the three Ps of physiology to prevent the causes of tears or episiotomies. And you will learn the difference between being 10 centimeters and being ready to push. After seeing the physiology in this way, one of my students, Sarah, said, simply mind-blowing. Thank you so much for sharing this information. I want to share this with all of the birth professionals that I have ever met, as it is so clear to me now how we have all been missing the big picture. And Cassie said, I took four courses and yours is the one I walked away with feeling the most empowered. Very specifically, the physiologic birth part where you show the slides of where baby is. Having known what baby does in that dance with the pictures, just let me trust the process. So I never felt worried. So if you'd like to learn more about what Sarah and Cassie are talking about, you can get started with this very special and unique physiologic birth training for free at naturalbirthcompass.com forward slash free class. I hope to see you there. At the time of this recording, which is March 6th, 2020, COVID-19 has descended upon one of my neighboring cities, with the epicenter at a skilled nursing and rehabilitation center. Unfortunately, our community has seen a handful of losses, and I want to start this episode by sending my condolences to their families and friends. In the wake of this situation, our local birth community has been carefully watching and assisting our expectant families and providing the best support that we can, So I thought I would replace the episode that I had originally planned to release with an update on what we're seeing in our local hospitals and what you can do to boost your immune health. So if the coronavirus does spread further, you can be more prepared with the best information that I can provide at this time. Now the information about COVID-19 is changing rapidly. Even during the time that it took me to put this information together, the recommendations have changed several times. But my overall intent is to help you create a healthy environment for you and your baby. And those recommendations, well, those are not likely to change. Imagine walking into your birth room so confident your birth team asks not how, but if they can help you. Imagine transforming the anxiety the worry and the uncertainty that you have about your birth right now into the confidence and knowledge that will end everyone's questions about your natural birth and even have them asking you how you did it are you ready to learn how you can stop imagining your wonderful birth and start preparing to experience it then you are in the right place i'm tristan the creator of the natural birth compass online childbirth education program and I'm coming to your ears to put notions into your brain, to spark new ideas that become a thought pattern, a thought pattern that empowers you to take control of your pregnancy, your birth, and your life as a parent. My perspective on birth as a childbirth educator has been shaped by my training in Eastern medicine, a deep study of Chinese philosophy, and a lot of observation of the natural world. So grab your mug, fill it with your favorite tea, and let's begin your journey to birth. So let's begin with some facts about coronavirus and the COVID-19 strain. Coronavirus is a respiratory virus, and the novel 2019 strain called SARS-CoV-2 that we're experiencing this year is in the same category of viruses as the coronavirus strains we have seen in the past that caused severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, and Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS. The virus we're seeing this year is genetically most similar to the SARS strain, thus the name SARS-CoV-2. There are actually a few other coronavirus strains that are far less severe, and we usually refer to them as the common cold. As for COVID-19, this is the term for the group of symptoms that the infection causes, including fever, sore throat, a dry cough, malaise, and body aches. And contrary to common thought, it is not a flu virus, as it's not in the influenza family. Now, When it comes to what we're seeing in pregnancy and newborns, at this time, what we know about the effects on newborns is primarily from China, where the virus has been active for months, and several pregnant women have tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. According to the reports, none of the newborns tested positive for the virus at birth, and neither did any newborn tissues or fluids, including tests on the placenta, amniotic fluid, urine, and saliva. Breast milk on the mothers has also tested negative for the virus, despite testing positive for the virus themselves, and even some of them displaying symptoms of active infection. Now, close to a dozen cases have been reported in infants up to 11 months of age. However, all of those cases were seen to be mild, and it appears that they've all recovered. Also interesting to note is that when breast milk was tested in three of the newly postpartum women, not only were there no cases of virus seen, but one of the women also had already developed antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 in her breast milk. So... It's possible that breastfeeding or offering your newborn breast milk, if possible, when testing positive for SARS-CoV-2 may provide an extra safeguard for newborns. What I don't have information about is whether the infants in China who tested positive and recovered were actually breastfed or formula fed. It would be really interesting to know more about that, but I think we can at least have a lot of reassurance that this virus is not demonstrating high virulence towards newborns or infants at this time. And as far as pregnancy itself goes, so far, pregnant women who've tested positive for COVID-19 infection have had fewer complications and less adverse outcomes than would be anticipated based on what we've seen in the past for those who were infected with SARS or MERS. Probably in part because at this time, SARS-CoV-2 seems to be far more dangerous for those over age 60. So how can you protect yourself and your newborn? Now, I'm not going to spend time telling you to wash your hands, avoid crowded places as much as possible, and be careful who you let visit you or your baby, because you already know that. I just want to be clear that I'm not going to talk about those things, not because I don't think those precautions are important. They are, of course, the best first line defense. But even using those best precautions, it can still be difficult to be 100% safe. So having some other tools to keep yourself and your family healthy, that's always a benefit in my book. So first I want to address nutrition because nutrition is the foundation for strong immune health. And of course, strong immune health is vital for so many things, not just avoiding illness, but even more so right now as the infection response aspects of your immune system is so precious for all of us. Your immune system relies upon your intake of protein and micronutrients. Some of the most important being vitamin B6, folate, B12, C, and E as well as the important class of trace minerals including selenium, zinc, copper, and iron. First, A deficiency in these micronutrients compromises immune function by affecting your fast-acting immune response signals, since these are comprised primarily of proteins and enzymes that are called cytokines. When a pathogen damages a cell in your body, cytokines spill out and essentially become a beacon to your immune system to quickly dispatch immune cells to the scene to engulf those invaders for analysis and identification. Further... A deficiency in these nutrients can also impact your T cell mediated immune response. Now, this is the one that most of us are familiar with and is our strongest defense system. These are the cells that try to destroy pathogens as soon as they're recognized by your immune system. And this is what contributes to your long-term adaptive or learned immune response, where you develop antibodies to the specific pathogens so that you better refine your response and prevent reinfection important antibodies that are likely going to be passed on in your breast milk should you be exposed, which I will cover shortly. Now, in the first half of pregnancy, for women who are otherwise healthy, the general recommendation for protein intake is about 60 to 80 grams, or sometimes even more per day. To reach that target means that you are probably going to have to include protein with each meal. The target for the second half of pregnancy increases even more and is ideal around 100 to sometimes even up to 140 grams per day, depending upon your specific needs and your health in pregnancy. Note that not everybody can consume that level of protein safely. So it's really important that you check with your prenatal care provider before you make any major adjustments to your diet or your protein intake to ensure that these levels are safe for you, especially if you have any history of kidney disease or any other type of kidney complications. Now, the reason that protein demands are so high for immune health is that the amino acids provided by dietary protein are needed for your immune system to function in all aspects. Those beacons, the cytokines that alert your immune system to an invader after a cell is damaged, consist primarily of amino acids. And antibodies that your immune system will begin to manufacture in response to an active infection against a specific pathogen, those are also composed primarily of amino acids. So, ensuring that you have sufficient quantities of them and you have the right ones, you need a complete set of amino acids. That's what's going to help your immune system be able to act fast, to act efficiently, and to continue a sustained high level of activity if it's needed in the case of an active infection. So now that brings us to the B vitamins. Foods highest in B vitamins that are most beneficial for immune health, specifically B6, B9, and B12. These include animal meats, fish like halibut, salmon, tuna, eggs, and nutritional yeast, B12 in particular is primarily sourced from animal products. If you don't eat meat, you can find it in dairy and eggs. And if you don't eat dairy and eggs, you can find it in smaller amounts in fermented foods, such as sauerkraut, fermented pickles or beets or other fermented veggies, kombucha or kefir. Although sometimes in pregnancy, fermented foods may be a little bit strong and overpowering, and especially if you are trying to manage nausea during your pregnancy. And the amounts in those foods are not going to be as high as they are in animal-sourced foods. Now, B6 and folate can be sourced from a few other vegetable sources, including green foods like broccoli, spinach, and other dark leafy greens, as well as beans. They can also be a good source of folate if they are agreeing with your digestion. And then trace minerals that are most important for immune health include selenium, zinc, copper, and iron many of these minerals can be found in seafood and animal meats particularly organ meats if you have a taste for them nuts and seeds can also be a really good source for trace minerals as well selenium specifically is known to be high in brazil nuts it actually only takes a few nuts several days per week to get enough to boost your selenium levels and again selenium can be found in fish and animal meats as other primary sources Zinc can be found in small seafood sources like oysters, clams, shrimp. Those can be really high as well as liver. Again, if you have a taste for that. And you can also find zinc in seeds, uh, pumpkin seeds and sunflower seeds, as well as beans and nuts. Copper can be found in seafood. It's especially high in lobster and also can be found in seeds, nuts and beans. And then perhaps the nutrient that probably most pregnant women are concerned with at some point in pregnancy is iron as low iron or anemia can be quite common during pregnancy. Good sources are animal proteins, dark leafy greens and beets, as well as beans and seeds. And then you can boost your iron absorption by eating iron rich foods along with citrus fruit or squeezing some citrus juice, some fresh lemon or orange juice onto those dark leafy greens to help provide a whole food source of vitamin C. Well, now that you're overwhelmed with information about what foods contain which nutrients, I want to make things super easy for you because I still remember what pregnancy brain feels like and no one wants to put extra energy into food planning if you don't have to. So here it is, the straight and simple way to do this. Hopefully you're eating some animal protein. Eat eggs five to six mornings per week with a healthy helping of dark leafy greens like spinach, uh, collard, kale, or arugula. These can be lightly cooked or you can just wilt them by putting your eggs on top of them when they're still warm. And then you're welcome to pair that with bacon, sausage, or pork for an extra dose of protein and a boost of zinc and copper. The other mornings, try soaking sesame, sunflower, pumpkin, or chia or flax seeds, and some berries into a high quality Greek yogurt or a kefir and let that sit overnight. And that will help give you a variety of trace minerals, B vitamins, and vitamin C, as well as some protein. For lunch, try chicken salad with pumpkin seeds on top of a salad of baby greens with some raw apple cider vinegar on top. And then alternate that with tuna salad on some days to get the benefits of the seafood. One day a week, have lentil or another bean-based soup along with dark leafy greens and some root vegetables like carrots, sweet potatoes, parsnips, and rutabaga. For dinner, you can mix up your routine by adding lamb one time per week, which is a good source of selenium and B12 that I didn't mention to you before. Also aim to get salmon or another healthy fish one to two nights per week, or one of those nights have a seafood medley-based dinner with a mix of sources like shrimp or crab or lobster, mussels, whatever assortment that you like. Add seeds and nuts to your salads, to your soups, to warm cereals or yogurts, Sesame seeds can pair really great with hard boiled eggs or snack on a mix of Brazil nuts, hazelnuts, walnuts, cashews, and almonds to get a wide variety of those trace minerals and a little bit of protein boost. One to two ounces several times per week is really all you need to get a boost of those trace minerals and B vitamins from nuts. And though you may not find them as tasty as the fresh versions, you can snack on canned oysters or mussels or sardines to add an extra boost of trace minerals and protein in an easy to grab and go snack. So that should get you started on some foods that will support a healthy, strong and efficient immune response. And another thing while we're on nutrition that I wanted to share with you is the herb lemon balm, which is known to have antiviral properties when extracted in hot water. So a cup of lemon balm tea per day may be a general preventative measure that's also pleasant to drink and safe in pregnancy. The bit of research that has been done on this herb demonstrates that its properties seem to inhibit early viral replication. So lemon balm is probably most effective as a preventative measure rather than being used after symptoms are already showing. Next, I wanna stress the importance of sleep for building immune health. Sleep has major impacts on metabolism, on appetite, hormone balance, and immune system health. And yet less than 50% of Americans report feeling rested from a night's sleep, even if they don't know that they're experiencing sleep disturbance. And if you're like most of the pregnant women I work with, you are probably feeling some negative effects on your sleep during pregnancy, in part from hormones, maybe from nausea, general pain and discomfort from being pregnant, and of course, there's the frequent nighttime trips to the bathroom. So while we're talking about sleep, did you know that not all species sleep in the same way that we experience sleep? Species like fish, reptiles, and birds, they only have sleep. In fact, sometimes they actually sleep with one eye open because they can rest half of their brain at one time. But your human brain requires deep sleep and both halves of your brain have to sleep at once. At different stages of life, we can get away with more or less sleep, and there is variance from person to person, but on average, we do really need seven to nine hours of restful sleep per night, broken up into several stages and phases, which I'm not going to cover, but if you have a sleep tracker, you've probably seen those on your sleep blogs. You know, sleep is important because if you get too little of it, you notice, but why is it that we notice it so much? During sleep, your brain is getting some much-needed regeneration and reboot time. In addition, your whole body is experiencing the benefit of the state of sleep. Your blood pressure will drop, your hormones shift into a more parasympathetic or restful state. Growth hormone is released, which helps regulate metabolism and also helps to repair and regenerate cells and tissues for healing from day-to-day damage and activities and oxidative damage that you experience from just general daily exposure. And that's probably one of the primary mechanisms by which sleep actually helps to reduce our chances of developing long-term chronic disease and potentially even cancer. So more specifically to immune health, during sleep, your body regulates its T cell production. Remember that these are those important cells of your adaptive immune response that will promote your recovery and your antibody response to ensure you recover fully and prevent reinfection. Research has also shown that cytokine production levels are increased during sleep. Remember, cytokines are those proteins that alert your immune system to the presence of the foreign invaders by being that beacon for your immune system to come and send resources and help out. Now, I don't need to tell you that sleep is important. You feel that. But if you have trouble sleeping, what do you do about it? The first step is to assess your sleep hygiene. One of the biggest problems that we have today that is within our control is exposures to screens and electronic lights and even your home lights. The retina in your eye sends signals of changing light to the pineal gland deep in your brain. So when light levels drop, your retina triggers your brain to release melatonin, which helps you fall asleep and stay asleep at night. Now, electronic screens and even your house lights, any kind of light exposure, this confuses your retina and will affect your pineal gland's ability to identify day from night. Over time, the health of your circadian rhythm, your body's natural biorhythm, that's going to diminish, and this can lead to insomnia, especially the ability to get into deep sleep so that you no longer wake feeling refreshed in the morning even though you think that you're sleeping. And chronic sleep disturbance, this will affect so many aspects of your immune system. I know what you might be thinking. Can't I just take melatonin supplements so I can continue to use my screen at night? Of course. Of course. Well, it turns out that supplementing with melatonin is not an ideal long-term solution, and it's actually been found to reduce your natural production of melatonin, and some people actually find that they become dependent upon melatonin supplements. So finding ways to cope with reducing your screen use in the evening is ultimately the most healthy thing that you can do to improve your sleep habits, to help your immune system, and to help your pregnancy. Now, some other aspects that I want to bring up to promote more restful sleep are avoiding stimulants at night, such as sugar and caffeine, and even environmental factors that have stimulating effects like television or radio that is loud or triggers a lot of adrenaline. We know that the part of our brain that responds to adrenaline triggering events cannot distinguish reality from television. So limiting this type of entertainment and relegating it to earlier in the day may help your body relax into a more restful night's sleep in the long term. This doesn't even have to be action movies or horror flicks. It can result from any programming that's simply too emotionally triggering for you, like many of the media outlets these days. If you find yourself reacting to things that you're watching or listening to or reading online, avoid these channels in the evening so they don't affect your melatonin release. The last point I wanna cover today is to consider carefully where you will be having your birth. Those of us who support natural out-of-hospital birth have spoken to the point that one of the major benefits of being in a birth center or your own home is that it limits your risk and your baby's risk of being exposed to potential hospital-acquired infections. So that brings me to what our local doulas are seeing in the hospitals where they are supporting our local families. In an attempt to try and prevent exposure to COVID-19 for newborns and their families, many hospitals are enforcing limitations on the number of support people allowed in the birth room, allowing for only one or two support people to be present for the entire birth, usually being, of course, the pregnant person's primary birth partner and maybe a doula if they're using one. Additionally, what we're seeing is that in most facilities, children are not being permitted on hospital premises as visitors at all. So do be prepared for that if that affects your birth plan or recovery time at all. So if you're not birthing at home and your expecting date is getting near, I would highly recommend that you contact your birth facility wherever that is so you know what their precautions are ahead of time to help you best prepare for what you can expect for your support team and your birth environment. Reducing any stress that you can as your birth approaches is only going to be of benefit for you. Initially, another recommendation that we were hearing about from the CDC was to consider temporarily separating a mom and her newborn for up to 14 days if the mother tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. Although I'm unaware of any cases of this happening in our local hospitals yet. As of the date of this recording, that recommendation appears to have been updated by the CDC to now recommend that mothers choosing to feed with breast milk continue to do so and simply use precautions – washing their hands, wearing a mask – to prevent the spread of infection to her newborn. This update is a relief to those of us in the birth work field, As we know that breast milk and safe skin-to-skin contact are some of the most beneficial things for a newborn's immune system. And since we have no evidence that COVID-19 is a major concern for healthy newborns, best practice for mothers who test positive may be to encourage mother and newborn safe skin-to-skin contact and breastfeeding for the immune system benefits. Now my question for you is, do the recent events have you thinking carefully about your choice of birth location? If you're opting for a hospital birth, are you finding yourself reconsidering due to rising concerns of hospital-acquired infections? Or if you're opting for an out-of-hospital birth, has the uncertainty of the situation caused you to have thoughts about transferring to a hospital to have access to the medical care? These are important things for you to be asking yourself. Now, if you're already planning an out-of-hospital birth, I hope the information that I've shared about how the low risk we've seen in the few newborns who've tested positive helps you to feel more at ease, and that the recent events have not deterred you from your original choice. At this point, the evidence does not support transferring an out-of-hospital birth to the hospital for low-risk women with a healthy pregnancy. If you have an expecting date in March or April of 2020, and you're opting to have your birth in the hospital by choice, you may want to take some time to research your out-of-hospital options, even if it's just to have them as a backup, So you know the full range of what's available for your birth. I know that it may sound scary, and it may not be what you've been picturing throughout your pregnancy, but sometimes scary becomes relative. And maybe this is your chance to reflect more on your birth, on your fears about birth, and on the choices that you're making. Sometimes you're presented with difficult choices, choices that become opportunities, Opportunities that make you stronger in the end for having made those choices. Maybe birthing in the hospital is still the best choice for you, or maybe it's the only option for you because of medical reasons or lack of access to other options in your area. If that's you, follow the advice in the first part of this episode on nutrition and sleep so that you can support your immune system to the best of your ability, and then you can focus more of your energy on having a healthy and amazing birth experience. Thank you so much for listening today, and let me know how you're doing and managing with all of the information out there on the coronavirus. I know it can feel really overwhelming at times. Let me know if it's affecting your birth plans. What are you hearing from your prenatal providers? Let's continue to create a community of positive support and well-being for families everywhere. And if you love podcasts that support positive natural birth approaches, then please subscribe to the Journey to Birth podcast so you don't miss any episodes. And please share this episode with anyone you know who might benefit from this very important discussion on this rather uncertain topic. You can find the full transcript and all of the relevant links for this episode in the show notes or by visiting our blog at naturalbirthcompass.com forward slash blog forward slash coronavirus hyphen pregnancy. If you want to reach out, find me on the socials at Natural Birth Compass or email me at info at naturalbirthcompass.com. Wishing you a wonderful journey to birth, and I will see you again next time.